Hello, and welcome to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. This episode, we'll be looking at the 1968 novel The Final Programme, which was the world's introduction to the original hipster, Jerry Cornelius. Following hot on the heels of Elric, the sexually ambiguous Cornelius was another iconic Moorcock invention that has seeped into all aspects of modern culture, influencing David Bowie, being homaged by authors like Brian Talbot and Alan Moore, and even making an appearance in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Moorcock said of his Cornelius Quartet, Part of my original intention with the Jerry Cornelius stories was to liberate the narrative, to leave it open to the reader's interpretation as much as possible, to involve the reader in such a way as to bring their own imagination into play. This impulse was probably the result of my interest in Brecht, an interest I'd had since the mid-fifties. Although the structure of the tetralogy is very strict, some might think over-mechanical, the scope for interpretation is hopefully much wider than the conventional novel. The underlying logic is also very disciplined, particularly in the last three volumes. It's my view that a work of fiction should contain nothing which does not contribute to the overall scheme. The whimsicalities to be found in all the books are, in fact, not random, not mere conceits, but make internal references. That is to say, while I strive for the effect of randomness on one level, the effect is achieved by a tightly controlled system of internal references, puns, ironies, logic jumps, which no single reader may fairly be expected to follow. So for this episode, Lord Shark's ostentatious couch has taken the form of John Clute's massive and uncomfortably bulky terms, the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction and the Encyclopedia of Fantasy. I'll just see if I can heave them open and see what they have to say on the subject. Let's have a look. So, John says, Just as Elric is a parody of Conan, so Jerry Cornelius is a direct parody of Elric. Elric turned inside out. Any sense that various avatars are parading before the footlights of the world, flaunting a succession of masks, must surely accord with Moorcock's intentions. In his early appearances, Jerry Cornelius represents Moorcock's first version of Harlequin, Commedia dell'arte, a portmanteau pop 1960s anti-hero, an anarchic streetwise urban ragamuffin in James Bond gear, amorally deft at manipulating everything from women to the multiverse itself. I can see why Lord Shark turned these massive bloody things into a couch. I'm not entirely convinced about him being particularly adept at manipulating women either, as we'll see when we cover the stories. So I'll pop those back where they were and sit on them instead of read them. Cornelius appears in four novels in the original series, the order of which I'll characteristically get wrong as we, dis- as we discuss them, although I'm not convinced that I'm not in fact correct and that there hasn't been some kind of negative reality inversion as well as a whole host of short stories that continue to appear to this day. Helping me out this episode is Breakfast in the Ruins' new boy, Hussein. He's a great guest, for reasons that I'm sure will become apparent, and I hope you enjoy listening to our discussion as much as we enjoyed recording it. So, I'm going to pop up to Derry and Tom's, get a good table, and thanks for joining us. Okay, welcome Hussein to Derry and Tom's Roof Garden, where we're going to be talking about Michael Moorcock's The Final Programme. When I first thought about actually putting this podcast together, I had a list of people who wanted to convince to come on it. 
and you were um, you were high up the list simply because we've spent so much time sitting in places like Costa or sitting in places having a nice dizzy breakfast and just gassing about things for a lengthy period of time. So whenever you think of doing something like a podcast, having someone who's got opinions is <laughs> a great thing to have. And having somebody who can articulate their thoughts about things is a massive bonus, even better. <laughs> so you're, you're the perfect podcast guest. Yeah. Although on, on another level, um, for a podcast about something as specific and niche, perhaps as Michael Moorcock or fantasy and science fiction, maybe is that the case? Because normally, whenever I have a new person on for the first time, I say, so what's your history with science fiction, fantasy genre, and Moorcock in particular? So I've got to ask you the same question. Well, let's say science fiction. Science fiction, and I have never really got on. Now, given the fact that I've actually got a background in maths, um, and you know, you would think I'd be a natural kind of person that would be more kind of more inclined to like the genre, but I have never, I have never <laughs> got on with the genre, and and I think it's mainly because of the fact that there there are things like I don't know, I, I find things that are supernatural, maybe not supernatural. That there, I just don't get on with the genre. You know, it's, it, it's I find there's something about it that just doesn't click with me. Maybe it's just because I just find certain things like I don't know, alien type of store for something which is which which I have to think so much about, especially like things like time travel and stuff, where you start thinking about well, if you know, if this happened, then how could this happen again and all this kind of, and I'll probably overthink some of this stuff. So. I have never really got on with something unless it was like bubblegum sci-fi, which is something like Back to the Future. Yeah. Which is I'm fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> That's not really sci-fi. Yeah. From in my, at least not in my head. Yeah. But yeah, I have I have never known anything about prior to this. I've never come across Michael Moorcock. I have never willingly read anything that was science fiction. Mm. Because I probably wouldn't get past the first two or three pages. Yeah, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't get through the first two or three pages. I don't think. Mm. Um, generally speaking, this was something I, I did as more as homework yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> so when you uh, you went off to Hajj, didn't you? And then when you got back, I was like, right, it's time. Yes, we've talked about this briefly, but it's time. You're back from Hajj. Let's yeah. get cracking. So I, I, I gave you, uh, well, I didn't give you a copy of the final program. You found one on Kindle. Yeah. So I, I, I got one off on the Kindle and I thought, okay, I'm going to, you assured me that it wasn't a long read. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave you some parameters to work with. <laughs> if it was more than a few, you know, page, I don't know how many hundred pages, whatever kind of thing, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I'm, I'm most likely already, like I said, I've, I've already got an aversion to anything sci-fi so but I said I'd, I'd give it a go you picked out the final program uh, saying that that was that was something that would fit perfectly within those yeah. parameters yeah um, I think I, I chose the final program just because it's it starts off like a wacky spy thriller and then the kind of psychedelic science fiction elements come in a little bit further down the line but it's it's not it's not science fiction it's well I just I just really wanted your opinion on it because it's it, I read it when I was 12 or 13, and um, I found it quite transformative about my approach and opinion to science fiction and fantasy, which I was into already. Yeah. But of course, I was reading quite a lot of Mocock by that point. So you read it on Kindle, and I dusted off my old, beautiful Mayflower edition with the crazy psychedelic cover. I'm going to pass that over to you now. 
and uh, just see if you can describe the front cover of the final programme from the 70s Mayflower edition and see if it's reflective. <laughs> and had I handed you that, would you would you have read it? You know, <laughs> I, I must admit, when you, when you told him about Michael Moorcock and that's what you want me to read, I, I obviously did Google Michael Moorcock and I saw covers like this, which it's difficult to describe, I've got to say. <laughs> But it appears to be a woman with her mouth open and her breasts, her naked breasts uh, on kind of show, also forming some kind of pathway towards her mouth <laughs> through, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a bizarre cover. <laughs> and I must admit, it's, it's not unlike the other covers that I'd also kind of looked at. It's... It's, it is bonkers, you know. There's, 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 there's so much with there's so much going on within it, though. You know, it's the kind of thing that would have really scared the crap out of me, if I'm honest. If I if I looked at that, I'd have just thought there's there's, there's some kind of demonic type of stuff being I don't know being conveyed in this kind of you know text, and and not that there's any kind of signs of any kind of demons apart from a couple of what looks like skeletons with a king and a queen type of arrangement or something. And in the background as ghosts, but it's just the uh, yeah, it's 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 absolutely bonkers. It really yeah. is. I, I, it's, it's difficult. Like I said to you, the the whole there's so much going on in there. Yeah, it's all the flames in the background, the big sort of tower thing that kind of appears probably in the first few kind of pages of the text. Is that like a two suns or something? But it's it's a very kind of symmetrical image, isn't it? Yeah. Um, at the top end anyway. Yeah, uh, so of course I, I see this. I've, I've discovered Moorcock by this point, and I see this in a. This is this wasn't one of my granddad's hands me hand me downs. This one, this yeah. is a discovery that I made, probably in a second hand shop. It's the copy that I did pick up in the eighties. Uh, interestingly, it says on the back "soon to be a major film," <laughs> and it was filmed. And uh, at some point, perhaps we should sit down and watch that movie, <laughs> and uh, and and do a podcast about that. We, that that will definitely happen because um, the, the movie was well. We'll go into that another time. But it it was mostly miss. But on a few points, it did hit yeah. in in quite nice ways. But it was done by the guy who did he used to direct episodes of the Avengers. You remember John Steed and Emma Peel. Yeah. So it had that, a similar kind of aesthetic, which fit in some ways, not necessarily in others. But yeah, I think um, this cover was definitely done by someone who probably read the last chapter when he was half asleep. Yeah. Um, or probably smoking something and then knocked this out. Um, well, yeah, it, it's it, not necessarily reflective of the body of the novel. It, it does appear that it's it's the first chapter and the last chapter, <laughs> and that that's pretty much kind of like how it's it's it seems to have been put together. And it's it's interesting because, like I said, I did look at some of the covers um, with the different editions of the final program and other other books as well, and. It, the, the artwork seems in itself to be quite interesting in that, you know, you get this, this almost looks like a, so I, my background, I used to be into hip hop, like really, mm. really big way in, in a, um, you know, in my youth. And some, some of the artwork in there kind of resembles some of the kind of graffiti artists mm. who would do that kind of like, you know, really kind of psychedelic. Yeah, very abstract. A very abstract, but the, the actual colours as well, in terms of how they kind of merge into one another, almost like a... Dali type of kind of like you know uh, soft spray blenders and all that, and and it kind of ha- has that sort of a feel to it, mm. you know. And whereas I think in in 
the, the, the newer edition that you've got is much more almost like stenciled kind of uh, spray. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's much more simplistic in its kind of ways of being able to convey. It looks like a Britpop album cover. Yeah. Made for CD. Yeah. It's quite simplistic. Um, and actually, some of the other ones, if there are smaller images on the back, the one for the English Assassin on the back looks totally like a Britpop album cover. Yeah. Looks like some Ocean Colour Scene album cover or something like that. Um, um, maybe it's reflective of the time that, you know, it's to, to, to attract, um, maybe when the first kind of editions came out, you know, people were kind of more used to that sort yeah. of art and being more attracted towards that kind of art. Whereas, um, not that Britpop was like, <laughs> you know, feels like it was... Uh, Five years ago, but it's yeah. still, I mean, I was, it's what, 20, 30 years ago, probably now. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, interestingly, rereading this again for the first time in quite a long time, you expect it to be yeah. because it was written in like 1967. Um, but in actual fact, because Jerry Cornelius himself from the very outset is an anachronistic kind of character, that makes it slightly more difficult to date. Yeah. You know, we'll get into kind of the descriptions of him as we go along. But I don't think it feels really in any way that dated. And and it was exactly that, you know. I've I've got I, I took a few notes as I was writing uh, as I reading this. But that was one of the first things that jumped out to me was that it could have been written today. It's so many themes within it, it's so relevant today. And and I couldn't to be honest, I couldn't believe that this was actually written in the time that it was. Mm. Because as I said, I had these expectations about this thing was going to be based on... Because it didn't really tell me anything really too much about the actual what the book was about. It was yeah. a blank canvas to me. So I'd formed these opinions in my head about what it might be like. And I expected these kind of big 60s sci-fi kind of impressions of what the world would be like. Yeah. You know, maybe a hoverboard. Silver bullshit, spaceships. Yeah, and... absolutely. You know, people flying around with hoverboards and all that kind of stuff. That, that's that's what I expected. Yeah. And so reading this, there was nothing. In fact, I didn't actually even know what when when this when this was actually written. Yeah. I, I have, that that's how little I actually knew about it. You know, because I didn't go into that sort of detail. Um. So I was really surprised when I actually after having read it, going back and actually reviewing some of the stuff because you know you you try to find out a little bit more about it when when after you've read something. And I was really shocked at the fact that it was written in the time that it was. Yeah. And there were very, very few clues for me that made it obvious that this was something that was written in that sort of time period. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've just checked out the, the publishing credits page on the, the Mayflower edition. So it was serialised in New World magazine in 65 and 66, and then revised and novelised with a copyright in 1968. So this is, you know, from when it was first conceived, this is already 54 years old. You know, I'm no spring chicken, but it's older than me. And it really is, like most Mocock stuff, it's it's just not dated at all. Some Mocock fantasy feels dated if mm. you read it. If you if you were to read certain Mocock fantasy, it might feel dated because everything he did in his fantasy books in the 60s and 70s are now fantasy tropes mm. because everybody's done them. Everybody's either ripped them off or emerged them or it's just become part of the broader fantasy zeitgeist. So... Everybody, everybody kind of assumes that Tolkien is the major influence on fantasy because because hobbits, dwarfs, elves, and that's true to a degree. But the broader swathe of fantasy, I think, is actually more influenced by Moorcock in terms of um, those kind of wider tropes. But that's those are things that we're discussing when we talk about the 
the, the fantasy novels of Murkoch, and we've talked about that at some length with Loz and, and Natasha. But his science fiction, to the extent that we can call this science fiction, I think is still really fresh. Because nobody's doing anything like this. Obviously, the book starts off as kind of like a psychedelic spy caper in some ways. But actually, as it progresses, and as the novel sequence progresses, and we get into... Because this is set in like an alternate version of the 60s. Mm. It doesn't pin down when it is, but it makes it plain quite clearly in the early chapters that this isn't quite the late 60s that Mocock lived in. It's an extrapolation based upon what's going on in the world in terms of current events, the potential for nuclear war, conflict around the world, and that becomes more and more of a thing over the subsequent novels. And in the fourth novel, there's kind of a denouement that explains all of that Mm. to some degree. But then we've got another 50 years of short stories, which must there must be 40 or 50 Jerry Cornelius short stories, some written by others with the blessing of of Moorcock, including authors like Brian Aldiss, who was a a big British science fiction and contemporary author. So Jerry Cornelius kind of took on a life of his own, and nobody's ever done anything quite like it beyond probably a couple of examples in graphic novel or comics medium where he's either been homaged or ripped off, frankly. Mm. So yeah, absolutely fascinating, just just how fresh it still reads. I think what, what, what I found also fascinating is that in the last probably 20 years, technology-wise, this world has moved on in leaps and bounds. Mm. You know, I think up until the 80s, I think things didn't really move at the pace that it did, you mm. know? So, for example, with music, um, people were still listening to cassettes, you know, even in, in, in the 80s, you know, and um, things hadn't been digitised to that kind of extent where it was so readily available. And then yeah. all of a sudden we went through a phase where, you know, we went from things like mini disc that only lasted for about, you know, you know. I forgot all about mini yeah. yeah. It only lasted about a few years, if that, you know, and, and, and the war between the totally what sounds a completely relevant war now between uh, the DCC, Philips's digital compact cassette format and the mini disc. And um, that sounds a completely relevant argument now, but it happened. Yeah. And before we kind of, everyone thought, you know what, it's, it's a stupid format. Let's just go to CDs and recordable CDs. And, and then obviously MP3s kind of completely um, shelved that as well. And so for, for, for that sort of period, there was such a rapid change in, 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 in technology. So you would have thought that, you know, with the internet and all the other things, that have, all the major things that have happened where we've actually completely transformed the way we do things, that there would be things within this book that we would be kind of looking at right now and thinking, oh, you know, this this sounds like a oh yeah, you know, this this is nostalgia yeah. because this is how we would have done things. Yeah. But of course, retro's also really in as well at yeah. the same time. And I bought a cassette <laughs> <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. I bought I bought uh, I bought something off Bandcamp, uh, a compilation of electronica done by Bristol artists to support the homeless in Bristol before Christmas, and it came with. A cassette. Wow. <laughs> I, I no longer have a cassette player, but just having it in my hand was like, ooh. And it's a bit dangerous, really, because I, I went back down the vinyl rabbit hole with yeah. 180 gram vinyl a few years ago and bought a turntable, and now I've got piles of vinyl up there that <laughs> I never play because we never go upstairs. We need a new house so we can fit all this stuff in. But there is something nice yeah. about that 
retro, the tangible feel of these things. Absolutely. My mum's still got a mini disc player, a recorder <laughs> that she used when she was a lecturer at university. So I should find out if she's still got it. Because if I bet she barely used it, it hadn't been switched on for 20 years. That might be worth a few, Bob. I'm going to have to go and ask my mum to rake around and see if you can find it. Yeah. And so in that, in that sort of backdrop, I said, I think it, it's absolutely relevant today the fact that there isn't kind of all any kind of real references to any of this stuff within the book. Well, intuitively, you might have thought that kind of would have made it a little bit outdated in, in, mm. in, in, in the ways, like I said, when, when they do things. But there's nothing reliant upon sort of the way we do things today mm. in the book, which I think is right. is why yeah. it makes it really relevant. And especially given the backdrop of some of the themes that are happening around, you know, the Brexit, political, uh, the political situation in the you know worldwide, you know, all, all of those things lend it to sound like, or when when you're reading, um, it, it really feels like something that has been written in the last few years, if nothing else. There's only few, very few things that within the book I found that I thought jumped out to me and I said, "Nah, I don't think that would happen." Yeah. You know, that just wouldn't be the case today. Yeah. And, um, I think those things are few and far between, though. Aren't they? They, they are very few and far between, and, and partly because probably I was looking for them as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. It is why I kind of it jumped out to me, because like I said to you, I I approached this book not really wanting to like it at all, yeah. <laughs> because I have a prejudice against science fiction, <laughs> so I I really didn't want to like this in any way. But all I can say is I didn't dislike it. I'm not sure if I would read another one. Yeah. Um, and that's probably because of the way it kind of ends more than anything else. Well, let, let me see if I can sell you on on, on maybe the second one. Because <laughs> the, the way this ends, the second book isn't a follow-on. The second book is a lot of the cast of characters are the same. There are additional characters brought in. You have that strange... Um, the way that the, the time scales are framed are even more fractured. And Jerry Cornelius essentially spends the entirety of the novel from memory in a washed-up, seaweed-bound coffin screaming. <laughs> and he's really only just... He's a passenger to the story. He's, right. he's, he's kind of a crucial element of the story, but really it's more about everybody else. And then the third book, he is he hasn't got black hair and pale skin. He's got black skin and white hair. So he's a, a like a camera negative version yeah. of himself. So each book is, you can read self-contained and isolated. They don't yeah. follow sequ- sequentially. Each one is like an experiment almost in, in how to do that kind of dislocated alternative, very close to our own world, but closer to war and disaster yeah. and entropy, which becomes like a key theme that kind of, gradual degradation of everything so you'll have a chapter where um the prior chapter i don't know jerry's been in london the next chapter is in a tank with shaky Collier in the cambodian jungle yeah and but it's it's the way it's constructed is quite challenging to read mm. but the overall themes are, are the thing and i must say i love them but once again like all these books i probably haven't read those sequels for 20 or more years so i can't wait to get yeah. through them and read them again so Dude, if that doesn't tempt you to read another one, you're not even alive, surely. Well, I tell you what, let's let's drill down a little bit into this because we're we're going to cover phase one. One of the really really handy things about Mocock novels from the time is they were all essentially split into three segments. So in this in the final program, you got phase one, phase two, and phase three. 
It was the same with all his books. I've got The Jewel in the Skull here, which I've been covering with Tasha. Book one, book two, and book three. Because his writing, he had a writing pattern. And his writing pattern was come up with a come up with an idea, split it into three, four or so chapters per part. He'd have a friend sat behind his sofa where he was typing or writing, who would pass pages back to. And he, he wrote that in three days. Which it's it's quite amusing really because you see Twitter and Facebook and social media, you get a lot of really earnest people on there and writers and people like that who post these inspirational memes Aye. about their writing craft and how much they invest in it. You, you read an old article where Mocock told you what his, told a magazine what his writing process was. And it was like, right, yeah, sit down. Three days later, novel. He was knocking them out for fun. <laughs> Late 60s, early 70s, he was knocking them out for fun. But I think he's, he's got that gift of his prose is really direct and vivid, and his ideas are completely unique to him, or certainly were at the time. Mm. But let's take a look at the introduction. So the beginning's called Preliminary Data, and we start off in Angkor in Cambodia. And uh, towering above the temple ziggurats is the Angkor Hilton. And above the Hilton, on the top, is a glass observatory owned entirely by Jerry Cornelius. And the introduction to Cornelius sets a tone straight away. Not only have we got... So we've got Angkor Wat, and in the Jer- world of Jerry Cornelius, Angkor Wat is dominated by the Hilton Hotel, mm. and he owns a glass observatory right at the top. Serene and carved in ancient rock, the faces of Buddhas and the three aspects of Ishwara looked from terraces and archways, huge statues, bas-reliefs, probably the greatest clutter of deities and devils ever assembled in one place. Beneath an extravagantly bloated representation of Vishnu, the destroyer, one of Ishwara's three aspects, a tiny transistor radio played. It was Cornelius's radio. The tune was Zoot Sweet by Zoot Money's big roll band. Beside the radio in the green-gold early afternoon sunshine, a man sat at leisure while mosquitoes buzzed and chattering gibbons leapt from one half-reconstructed terrace to another. A Buddhist priest passed by, shaven and saffroned, and a group of brown children played among the massive statues of forgotten heroes. It was a pleasant afternoon with a slight breeze fanning the jungle. A good time for idle speculation, thought Cornelius, sitting down beside the man and shaking hands. They sat in the fallen stone palm of some minor Hindu divinity and took up the conversation where they had left off earlier. Jerry Cornelius was a young man with long, fine black hair that flowed to below his shoulders. He wore a black, double-breasted car coat and dark grey trousers. His tie was of black wool and his white shirt had a high collar. He was slim, with dark eyes and large, long-fingered hands. The other man was an Indian, owlish and pudgy, perpetually smiling, no matter what he said, in shirt sleeves and cotton trousers. Jeremiah Cornelius was a European of many parts. The Indian was a Brahmin physicist of some reputation, Professor Hera. They had met that morning while touring the city. It had been love at first sight. So, we're in the first chapter of the book. We've got this alternate version of Angkor Wat. We've got Jerry Cornelius... Already himself an anachronism in the way he's dressed. You know, maybe maybe you could get those things down Carnaby Street in the 60s. But he's sitting with a pudgy little Indian professor. And almost straight away, after their philosophical conversation about cycles of existence, according to Gnosticism, Hinduism and Buddhism, we found out we're approaching the end of the fourth and final age of the cycle. And they have this extensive philosophical discussion which is quite untypical of Murcock's 60s output in terms of characters engaging in in quite extensive dialogue 
but it's deeply descriptive of the cosmology of, of the world he was creating. So up until that point, I don't think he's really deva- defined his cosmology of, of, his, of his body of fancy by that point. But this is, this is the first time he really starts to dig down into it, but it's all influenced by Eastern mysticism and mm. um, spirituality. But I think the most, the, the most surprising thing about this is after they've had this, this big conversation, they just hit the sack. <laughs> and there's there's nothing lascivious about it. It's matter of fact. Yet at the time, in 1966, someone reading that, would they have taken instant offence at it? I think a lot of people probably would. So straight away, in the first couple of pages, Mocock's 50 years ahead of his time in describing a homosexual relationship quite casually and without any drama. It's just absolutely matter of fact. And I think that's a really, really good example of how this book reads like a modern book. There's nothing salacious about it. There's nothing mm. sensational about it. It's it's quite remarkable, really. And now, of course, I read this at the time. I can't remember how I reacted to that when I read that when I was like 13 or 14. I, I hope that I just went, ooh, that's surprising and moved on. But I, can't, I honestly can't remember. But reading it today as an old book, these these are some of the things that I love about Michael Moorcock. So I've, I find that... Um, Absolutely fantastic, and especially when it's kind of coming off the back of a, a deep philosophical discussion about cycles of existence and cycles of the world. Yeah, so I I, I do remember. So I, I was reading this, I think, on the train because I'd I, again one of the one of the criteria that I'd set in terms of being able to read something was that I'd be able to pick this up on my fifteen minute commute into Leeds, and uh, I think I was reading this on the train and. I must admit, I because I I was reading it at a, a, a pace. I, I I'm not sure that it registered in my head the gender of the prof. Ah. So I think I knew that this was a bloke yeah. that he was chatting to. Yeah. But maybe I think intentionally I didn't go back and have that verified afterwards. Yeah. You know. So I just thought I I think it was a bloke, but not quite sure. And it was partially because of when I was reading this, my my head was kind of almost telling me that now it can't be a bloke that he's chatting to, you know, given the fact that I knew that this was an old book. Because of the age of the book. Yeah, I knew it was an old book. So I'd kind of almost, my head had corrected it almost, saying, no, it's actually probably a woman, you know. It was was a woman that he's chatting to. Until the point where Professor Hero returns in the last few chapters of and and then it kind of confirms to me actually yeah it was it, it was a bloke all along and by that stage it wasn't a surprise to me because obviously yeah. they, they, I found out a little bit more about Jerry Colton by, yeah. by that stage but at the very first stage I, I actually I, I couldn't believe that that was I think uh, uh, a relationship yeah. a homosexual relationship more because of the timing of as you said I wouldn't have thought that that, that would have been the, the case and strangely enough um, when you just talked about when when you reread that chapter, uh, uh, sorry, that expert, that I, I didn't, I I always had this impression with, of Jerry Cornell as as a as a chap who kind of had this love for his sister in maybe in unhealthy ways. <laughs> yeah, we've not got to that bit, yeah, have we? Yeah. But but everyone else was always on a kind of maybe maybe not sort of love. It it, it, it more of a kind of a relationship of 
I don't know certain benefits, uh, and and and, yeah. and and that's that's how I kind of had this impression of, of of his other relationships, but when you kind of just describe that as like you know being love at first sight, it, I suppose in some ways it kind of surprised me that that's how he'd kind of described it as you know that sort of relationship with um, Professor Hero. Yeah. Once we get into the body of things, we'll start to see a, a few more kind of. Um, Mocock traps and some similarities with with other things, but that the relationship between Jerry and Frank and their sister mm. directly mirrors things in in another saga which he wrote earlier. Funnily enough, and, and the the next chapter kind of goes straight into that. So we're in London; it's raining, and Jerry's snooping on a meeting of of businessmen, old suits, and they're plotting and waiting for him in the house of someone called Mister Smiles. And Mr. Smiles is the owner of the house. There's Mr. Lucas, a casino owner, and there are some others. I'll just read a little bit from page 37. Miss Brunner was a computer program of some experience and power. See, closest to her was Dimitri, her slave, lover, and sometime unwilling pimp. She wore a straight fawn courage suit, matching button boots. He also wore a courage suit of dark blue and brown tweed. Her hair was red and long, curving outwards at the end. It was nice hair but not on her. He was the son of Dimitri Kotrobusis, rich with the fresh, ingenuous appearance of a boy. His disguise was complete. Behind Miss Brunner and Dimitri in shadow sat Mr. Cruikshank, the entertainer's agent. Mr. Cruikshank was very tall and fat. He had a heavy gold signet ring on the third finger in his right hand. It gave him the common touch. He wore a slick silk Ivy League suit. In the corner opposite Mr. Cruikshank, near the fire, sat dark Mr. Powis, hunched in his perpetual, neurotic stoop. Mr. Powis, who lived uncomfortably off the inheritance left him by his mine-owning great-uncle, sipped a glass of Bell's cream whiskey, staring at it as he sipped. So you've got this gang of folks plotting something or other, and they're plotting a raid on Jerry Cornelius's father's house, but they need Jerry for some reason. So Jerry arrives quite ostentatiously, swans in, and commits to the plot for purpose, he says, of revenge. Mr. Powers' brooding Welsh first didn't look up. I'd like to know why you're helping us, mind you, Mr. M- Mr. Cornelius. Would you understand if I told you that it was for revenge? Revenge? Mr. Powers shook his head rapidly. Oh, yes. We all get those grudges from time to time, don't we? Then it's revenge, Jerry said lightly. Now Mr. Smiles has told you my conditions, I think. You must burn the house to the ground when you've got what you wanted, and you must leave my brother Francis and my sister Catherine unharmed. There is also an old servant, John. He must not be hurt in any way. So, I, I don't know if you listened to the Dreaming City episode I did with Oz, but this setup is exactly the same as the first Elric story from 1963, The Dreaming City, but that's a fantasy story with swords and ships and everything else. So, he's revisiting his own material here, mm. but putting a slightly different slant on it, but also. This is the start of this kind of connection that's shot through Moorcock's fiction, in that all of his characters tend to be different avatars of the same thing. And as time went by, a term was coined for it, a very typical fancy term, the eternal champion. And the fact that all his tales take place in a multiverse, he actually started using the frame the multiverse before Mm. scientists did. So we've now got this kind of quite common scientific theory of multiple multiple universes and dimensions of reality. This is what he was building his um, fantasy canon around at the time. 
So, but, but from this perspective, this is Jerry. So obviously at this point, Jerry is, for some reason, he wants to raid his dad's house, burn it to the ground, doesn't care about anything else other than keeping Frank, his sister, and his old housekeeper, mm. John, alive. And then in chapter two, you find Jerry driving his Duesenberg, drinking whiskey, popping pills, and listening to pop music in quadraphonic sound <laughs> in his big Duesenberg. And he's listening to, once again, Beatles, The Who, and Zoot Money. Now, when I read this, I had no idea who Zoot Money was when I was 14. Then probably seven or eight years ago, I saw a guy called Alan Price was in The Animals. I remember House of the Rising Sun, mm. obviously before our time. But we saw um, Alan Price in Ilkley. I can't remember the name of the theatre in Ilkley. We got a little box and watched Alan Price. And Zoot Money was playing organ for him. That's the first time I ever realised Zoot Money was a real person. <laughs> because I, I thought, Zoot Money, where have I heard that name, Zoot Money, before? And it was <laughs> from the final programme. But it was, it was quite... Uh, Quite a successful recording artist and producer, and wrote things like adver- advertising jingles, and oh, okay. had quite a, a a broad career um, in music. And yeah, he's still out there and he's still at it, which is quite impressive. So he drives through the rain to the coast, where he bribes a harbour master, calls for his father's place on the coast of Normandy, a fake Le Corbusier chateau, but taking time to muse on how PR manufactured bands are completely crap. <laughs> well. Little did Mocock know, <laughs> which is once again is kind of to some extent predicting the future. Absolutely. So you're out within range of the house. After a while, his father's fake Le Corbusier chateau came into sight, a large six-story building with that quaint, dated appearance that all futuristic buildings of the twenties and thirties had. To boot, this chateau had a dash of German expressionism in its architecture. For Jerry, the house symbolised the very spirit of transience, and he enjoyed the feeling he got from looking at its silhouette, much as he enjoyed listening to last year's hits. The house stood on the very edge of a cliff that curved steeply above the nearest village, some four miles distant. A searchlight was trained on the house, making it look rather like some grotesque war memorial. Jerry knew the house was staffed by a small private army of German mercenaries, men who were as much part of the past as the house, yet intratemporarily reflected something of the spirit of the 70s. It was November 1960. So he's arrived at his father's house to do his secret rendezvous. But just before you get that, there's a conversation that happens on just prior to them reaching that place. Yeah. Again, I was as I was reading this. So this you've got this group as you described of. People that you wouldn't think that naturally would kind of fit together, yeah. cobbled together like the A team, you know, about to go and do this job. And in, in and as they're going towards this job, they have this conversation, and the dialogue between all of uh, the, the the people that are going to to the job evoke memories of things like Pulp Fiction, where they're about to do this job, knowing full well that a few of them are probably going to not come out with life. Yeah. And rather than being nervous about this, they're all kind of just talking about these philosophical arguments about, mm. you know, about the life and uh, the, its form. But I just remember thinking, this is the kind of stuff that writers such as um, Tarantino and others have been completely inspired by something big is about to happen, but let's almost distract the reader by this conversation, which 
you know, just wouldn't think would be the thing that you and I would be doing if yeah. we were just about to do this job. But it kind of describes something about the nature of these people that for them it isn't it, it's it doesn't hold that same sort of kind of magnitude of what's about to occur mm-hmm. or or those same kind of feelings and emotions that would we would expect to, to occur within us. So it almost kind of separates them from the normal person because yeah. you kind of see that these guys are actually there's something special about them in, yeah. in in some ways you know that they they're not the kind of ordinary people yeah. and it just leapt out to me that 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 was you know as I was kind of reading that that I, I see now where those kind of writers like Tarantino got their inspiration from mm. to write some of this stuff quite inspirational in terms of what how other other writers have since taken on yeah yeah I I, I don't wonder how kind of how common that was to to that kind of spy or mm. gangster or Raymond Chandler like fiction, you know the the suits sitting around drinking in this case Bell's Earl Cream whiskey, smoking cigarettes around a fire, talking quite casually about the job. Even though beyond it being Jerry Cornelius's dad's house, we don't know why they're going there. We mm. don't know what they're looking for. We don't know what the objective of the raid is because. But I'm, I'm not sure if they, if they were even talking about the job. Yeah. That, that's what kind of struck me. They were actually talking something. They were talking about Jerry. They were talking about Jerry Cornelius. What a weirdo he was. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not degree. about. It's, yeah, so that that's yeah. what it was. It wasn't like they were talking about what was about to happen in yeah. any shape or form. It was just about a distraction to the about the, the job that you know, and that that's what that, that that's what it was. Why it was. Yeah. Something that was different. Whereas in other kind of you know, as you kind of said, they, they might be talking about you know. Uh, the the job in a way which was casual, yeah. But it would still be talking about the job. This wasn't like that, I think. Yeah. You know, so and and I think in Pulp Fiction and Tarantino does some of that, um, some of that dialogue that people love. Yeah, it it was about this kind of you know witty kind of dialogue about something that wasn't related to the actual yeah. job that they were about to do. Yeah, and I think it's 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 a little bit like you know that it kind of sets the the tone for that sort of way of writing almost relaxed and casual approach to violence and potential destruction yeah so back at the house that that last sentence is the first indication that something around jerry's world um or the world that this is taking place in isn't quite what we would understand as reality because when he talks about the private army of german mercenaries it says Men who were as much part of the past as the house, and yet intratemporarily reflected something of the spirit of the seventies. Mm. And then the next chapter says, it, the next entry says, it was November nineteen sixty something. However, as Jerry cut the engine and drifted on the current, he knew we would carry him towards the cliff between the house. Sorry, beneath the house. So you've got that's a really weird yeah. kind of juxtaposition. So, and this is Jerry's thought process. So for the first time, we get an indication that Jerry has some kind of concept of the themes and currents of the 1970s. Mm. That's really the first example of any kind of science fiction inkling that there might even be in this story. And it's it's throwaway. And if you're reading this on the go, you could quite easily just kind of scoot past that. But that's kind of the first indication that we that we get that Jerry is something unusual and that potentially has an awareness or ability to diff- to visualise different time frames. But I think it also makes you think about that conversation that he has with Professor Hira about the concept of time. Mm. And um, when, when they're talking about that uh, in, in, in Cambodia, I think, where they, they kind of uh, talk about time as if something that kind of 
repeats itself yeah. um, in a sick, circular kind of way. And so it time is no longer kind of like a linear concept. It, well, I'm not sure if it is a linear concept or not, uh, whether it is a linear concept. It's a, it, it's one that kind of, kind of repeats itself over hundreds of thousands of years or something, you know, I think. But that that's kind of, I, I guess, if, if you were paying any kind of attention to the first kind of conversation, which I must admit was a little bit heavy when I first started reading it on the train, I was thinking, I'm not sure if I'm following all the kind of, uh, you know, mysticism and, and the, the kind of concept of time in this. Yeah. But my wife and I have kind of talked about the concept of time uh, from a, Islamic perspective, you know, in terms of being able to marry the the, the concept of kismet, predestiny, and free will, yeah, and being able to understand well how how does that all kind of work, and we maybe explored a few different kind of versions of time, perhaps that are yeah. at play, and in in doing that, I think that kind of resonated with me when he was trying to talk about stuff in in that sort of way that yeah. maybe this isn't time isn't something that is linear as we kind of almost naturally think of and and it's something isn't you know it's something that you maybe can jump back and forth from so to speak you yeah. know or, or and so yeah but i must admit that that particular sentence i probably i i might have missed the first time i uh well but when i was reading it as yeah. well but when i was doing my reread from for my notes i can't remember whether i picked up on, on that first time but but of course you read these things years later with the um, the benefit of hindsight, having read, you know, the four main novels in the sequence, some spin-off novels, and a whole host of short stories. Not I've not got all through all of those either. Because interestingly, um, he did a short a short Jerry Cornelius story in response to nine eleven called Fire in the Cathedral, and he did another one in response to Trump getting elected. <laughs> um, which uh, I just picked up recently. Um, I've, I've, I've yet to read them. We'll cover them at some point in the future because um, I'm sure they'll be fairly entertaining. But do I recall you telling me that your missus is into fantasy and science fiction? She, she is very much yeah. into that kind of thing. But having said that, I don't think she... You, I think she'd be more like bubblegum kind of sci-fi, really. But have, she, I don't think she's she's into it in a way which is that she she loves it and she'll find everything sci-fi, etc. Yeah. But... If there's anything sci-fi or fantasy on TV or uh, Netflix or a, a book of that kind of nature that kind of comes her way, yeah. it's something that she's attracted to. Yeah. So if she's watching something like that on TV, it, it's usually that she ends up watching it by herself. Yeah. There's, there's got to be something in there that hooks me into it. Yeah. Because as I said to my, I have a, a prejudice towards this. My my default position is that I'm not going to like it, and um, and so it takes a little while for me to get convinced that you know it's it's uh, it, it's something worthwhile watching. Whereas for her, it really chimes at her, all all of these things. So I was telling her about this, and um, and I think if there was an audio book version of this, given the fact that she's she struggles with time at the moment and she's she's got her book club book to read through, um, so that's the only thing that she'll probably spend time reading at the moment, yeah. you know, but. Um, if there was an audio ver- book version of this, I think she would give it a go. Um, I wonder how an audio book version of this would work because I must say this is one of those books where I read a paragraph and I think I furrow my brow, then I have to go back and reread it. <laughs> so, not because the language is difficult, just because the concept you don't always grasp the first read through. Yeah, but that I, would be I absolutely I fascinating. I think I think it's it's one of these things that like I've only read it the once yeah. mainly. You know, I've, I've I've not kind of reread chapters and stuff like that you know because 
well, as I said, I, I, I just wanted to get through the book. And uh, I think when we, when you were kind of asking me for updates, <laughs> I think I probably read about 10%. And the next one, I was like 15% down yeah. the line. And that was like three weeks after. Yeah. So I, I knew I had to get through the book. So um, I wasn't um, I wasn't spending time rereading stuff. But it's, it's interesting that when you're reading out a little way expert from those chapters now, um, I, I kind of, I'm building on that knowledge of what I've already learned and, and I'm, I'm seeing things now that I might have missed first yeah. time round. But I think that's not necessarily different with other books as well. It's just that with, with this one, there's little details which kind of almost like little clues into perhaps what was building up to be this kind of uh, concept of all, all the things that are, all the themes that are actually at play. So you, you can you can quite easily miss some of those things, but I don't think that if you missed it, you wouldn't end up with the essence of the book in the end. Yeah, and, and that's that's the same throughout all of the novels that he wrote in the late 60s and, and early 70s. And, and it's also interesting that... Um, I'll get back to that in a second, because just, just this, ne- this next bit, as, as Jerry approaches the cliffs and is met by his old servant and mentor, John Natbielson, who was described as a lugubrious Scot. I do like the word lugubrious. I had an English teacher who... I can't remember what the context of it came up, but he, um, I think I'd used lugubrious. I'd read lugubrious, probably in this, <laughs> and then used it in an essay. And he was he was absolutely over the moon that someone had used that word in an essay in English class. So I, whenever I think of lugubrious, I always think of Mr. Simmons. <laughs> but once again, this is all seeming quite familiar because it's still a retread of The Dreaming City. So we learn that Jerry's sister, Catherine, is in a drug-induced slumber at the hands of his brother Frank. Mm. In the Elric story, it's his cousin. And her quarters are under guard by a German mercenary. So John and Jerry sneak through the house, avoiding electronic security measures along the way. And at some point they pass through a library where we just find out a little bit about how pretentious (laughs) Jerry is as well. Now they're stood in a dark library. Through the transparent wall to their right, they could see the sea, like black marble streaked with veins of grey and white. Most of the other three walls were covered with shelves of pink fibreglass. They were filled mainly with paperbacks. The half dozen or so books bound in leather and titled in gold stood out incongruously. John shone his light on them and smiled at Jerry, who was embarrassed. They're still there, sir. He doesn't come here often. Otherwise he might have got rid of them. Not that it would matter that much, for I have another set. Jerry Winston looked at the books. One of the titles was Time Search Through the Declining West by Jeremiah Cornelius. Another was called Toward the Ultimate Paradox, and beside it was The Ethical Simulation. Jerry felt he was right to be embarrassed. So we, we still don't know why Jerry is trying to do his dad's house in. We still don't know why he wants it burning down, but we do know that he's written some really, really fucking pretentious books <laughs> about time and the history of time. Which, you know, frankly, because we started off this, this um, the discussion about Professor Hera... Mm-hmm. And Jerry talking about cycles of time and cycles of existence. So now we find out Jerry is some kind of scholar. And once again, this this introduces this like meta intertextual take, not only on the story that we're in, but Moorcock only probably six or seven years into his own professional writing career, and he's only in his mid-twenties by this point, is starting to break down and have a meta intertextual take on his own work and his own fiction because of this being a retread of his first published story, The Dreaming City. And the final revelation from the fourth book, The Condition of Muzak, when you consider that, this all becomes one big meta-tapestry. So what you said about missing individual bits and pieces, 
is absolutely correct because the overall tapestry is there and you don't have to hone in on a fine detail. There is so much going on in these books. So, of course, when I'm 14, 15 years old and I'm reading all this stuff, I've never read anything like this in anything else. You've had fancy and science fiction stuff that's sequential mm. and, you know, things happen. But this is all, to me at the time, quite mind-blowing. And nobody had done anything even vaguely approaching this kind of level of complexity. And there's two ways you can look at it. One is he had a grand plan for all of this, which I don't believe he did. I think he just developed as he as he developed mm. his own writing style and his own ideas. And the other is it's really, really fucking easy and lazy to just constantly and continually refer back to yourself so you don't have to create all new things. And I don't think it's that. I don't think that is the case, but I think it's somewhere in between those two things. I think he, he had so much in his head that he wanted to get out on paper and inevitably it all became... Uh, contrivance is the wrong word, I think, but it's interesting that in the 70s there were two books that to some extent put a capstone on everything he'd written from the mm. early 60s through to the mid to late 70s. And one was called The Quest for Tanalon, which was like a capstone to all of his fantasy sequence. And then there was a condition of Muzak, which is the capstone to the Jerry Cornelia sequence. But it still works as a capstone to everything else. And I'm not going to say anything else about it because it's, that's for a future, a future episode. But he's already laying the seeds yeah. for all of this to be certainly not put to bed because he would then go on after those two books to continue mm-hmm. to develop it. And actually he's done a similar thing in the mid-2000s with a book called White Wolf's Son where once again he puts like a final denouement on all of his work, which is contradictory to some of the earlier stuff. But that's it just seems to he's written over hundred books. Mm. He's like, you know, he's he's just turned eighty. He could do what the fuck he wants. <laughs> he could do whatever he wants. Because his brilliance is not is simply not in question. It's it's it, when when you, again we talk about those when we learn about Jerry in in that state where you kind of see that he's written these books at that stage. And I was just thinking they're just when when you kind of see that he's, he's written these books that are, you know, on, on they're not they're not like you know subjects that could be tackled by some novice. You know, yeah. it would need certain amount of um, knowledge around that kind of subject, um, and and you would expect somebody who's perhaps um, had a dissertation at university as as a PhD thesis yeah. or something like that to maybe have one book on that kind of thing. Yeah. But to have several kind of whatever it was that he had in there in that library of 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 those books um made me wonder that this chap who comes across as quite a young chap, you yeah. know, in, in 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 as I was reading the book and somehow he's amassed this knowledge to be able to write all of these books already, you know, yeah. at that kind of age. He's about 25. Yeah. At this point. So do you think Jerry Cornelius is almost like a, a, a mirror of, of some way of him? Yeah, in, totally. In that um, sort of way. He, he actually himself has admitted that the Elric character in The Dreaming City, when he's, which he writes when he's about 20, 21, is basically a reflection of him. He's petulant, he's gaudy, he's just come off... Mm-hmm. This is the character, but... It, Mokok himself has just come off the back of an unsuccessful relationship and is feeling really, really bitter. And this informs Elric. Five years down the line, he's, he's written more books. He's the editor of, a mag- of a, an international magazine. Is this him revisiting the Dreaming City? And he's now a more sophisticated version of the character. 
And this is a much more sophisticated take on essentially the same thing than the Dreaming City is. Much as I love the Dreaming City, it's a different thing. It's brilliant, but it's like a super sophisticated take on things. And the Jerry Cornelius novels at that point are by far the most sophisticated thing he's writing. Um, so yeah, I think it is a reflection of himself and where he is at that point in his journey as as a writer. And it's you know it's and again having done the Dreaming City six eight weeks ago with Lars and then reading this again. For the first time, and you know, mm. it's 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 interesting to kind of read these things and think about these things because you know, even the very next thing that happens is um, John and Jerry uh, brutally dispatch a mute eunuch-like German guard, and Jer- Jerry dismisses his servant before entering his sister's quarters. It's exactly the same thing as happens in the Dreaming City. It's it's almost point for point, but with a different approach. And he finds she's drugged up, and the room's littered with Frank's drug paraphernalia. This is something that in the film is really really well. Um, adapted. The defences of the house later on, the psychedelic house defence is not quite so good because they didn't have the budget but this stuff is all in the film really really well done. So Frank arrives with some goons, Jerry kills them with nerve gas um, and then chases Frank but some militia are on the way so Jerry has to scram. And he goes via the library pausing to cast his old books into the sea (laughs) because he's essentially completely divorcing himself from his past at that point and he gives John instructions for his return before we tackle that yeah i must have there was something that i'd, I'd written uh, a note up and it was about his weapon of choice the, oh, the needle, needle gun. gun now i've got no bloody idea what this thing is and i remember i'd googled it thinking what the heck is a needle gun so i came across this thing that i think plasterers use or it, it's it's some sort of DIY tool, and I'm thinking this is not it. So in my head, as as we kind of do as kind of like kids, you know, you kind of go to the next best thing in your memory yeah. that might describe this, and I can only visualize this as something like some kind of contraption that he uses that fires out acupuncture needles at people. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny when, when I read it, I think. This is like drug paraphernalia turned into a weapon. <laughs> so Frank uses one and Jerry uses one. Yeah. They're both all about pills and, and stimulants and all yeah. this business. So it's like if if you've got this psychedelic, I don't know, super spy, whatever Jerry is, because he's, he's not really a spy. We don't really know what he is at the moment. He's, they're both obviously wealthy sons of their father. Frank's basically into taking drugs and having a good time. Jerry is into um, spirituality and cosmology and um, physics and has, has written books on them. But ult- ultimately, they're just drug-addled fuckwits to some degree, mm. which I think also Moorcock admitted to some degree that <laughs> he, he was he was kind of there at that time because at the time, Moorcock was hanging around with the early members of Hawkwind. He was taking speed with Lemmy. Moorcock and Lemmy were friends. Oh, I see. Yeah, and Moorcock actually performed and wrote music with Hawkwind, the prog rock band in the 70s. So it was very much part of that counterculture set. And and when you describe the way he wrote in terms of, you know, setting a very kind of intense sort of writing period, I think I can only imagine that there were things help the aids being used yeah yeah yeah. definitely uh, i think that was definitely the case and uh, at the end of the day if you hang around with lemmy in the late 60s i'm sure it's not all tea and biscuits yeah yeah so it was it was definitely it was definitely in that in that zone but yes so i I always i always took the needle gun as drug paraphernalia turned into a handgun 
that's how I always kind of read it. Yeah. Uh, but the the the, once again, the film adaptation, the needle gun's a bit lame. I must say, it just it is literally something that just fires out little darts about that big. <laughs> but it, they don't look particularly devastating or threatening. But yeah, that is another semi-sci-fi element, isn't it? You know, the fact that he uses something like that, and it's never really described what it is. Do not be alarmed, I am manipulating the time streams to send you a message from the future. Over the next 30 seconds or so, I will refer twice to Miss Person, but I can assure you, I mean Miss Brunner. So on to chapter three, we, we, we now find out about Miss Person. So while Jerry's been doing all this, Miss Person has been insisting on calling Dimitri Cornelius during Rumpy Pumpy. <laughs> he's, he's really pissed off. <laughs> so she's obviously got a hair obsession straight with Cornelius. And we get a roundup of the activities of the other conspirators. Mr. Crookshank is congratulating himself on the uh, the management of Little Miss... I can't read my own notes there. Little Miss something or other, the pop starlet who's secretly a boy. Mr. Powis is anxious and, and getting lost. Mr. Smiles is reminiscing regarding a bank job him and Jerry did a few years ago. So Mr. Mr. Smiles has obviously got history with, with Jerry. And Jerry gets back in London, and after cleaning some needle gun, cleaning his needle gun, he has some coffee and a couple of Mars bars, and he's ready to roll. And then we get a, a really interesting little paragraph, which once again, just bit by bit now, we're getting drip-fed some things that just make us realise that this situation and everybody involved in it are not quite well not 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 quite normal for mm. want of a better expression he found that he didn't need to eat much because he could live off other people's energy just as well it was exhausting for them of course he didn't keep many acquaintances long and catherine was the only person off whom he hadn't fed indeed it had been his delight to feed her with some of his stolen vitality she hadn't liked it much but she'd needed it when he eventually got her away from that house and back to normal again if he could ever get her back to normal again. He would certainly kill Frank when they raided the house. Frank's final needle would come from Jerry's gun. It would give him his final kick, the one he kept looking for. So you, you could read from that that it's a metaphor, mm. that he just needs people around him. Or you could read that as he is literally a psychic vampire who steals the energy of other people. And once again, there's a weird parallel there because in the Elric stories, he has a sword which steals people's souls and gives him vitality because Elric is a weakling who is only kept alive by drugs. So once again, he's kind of flipping what he wrote with the Elric story. But it, it's, it kind of it did make me wonder, I think, at some point or another, whether that what was kind of what was... Because we, we kind of understand that Miss, Miss Bruner... Uh, and Jerry seem to be of a certain kind of wavelength that they both have, they recognise each other beyond the veil of human yeah. kind of um, interaction. There's a scene where Jerry and her have, a, um, I don't know, a one-night stand or something mm. with some, someone or another, and Jerry comes down at her house and doesn't find the, um, the last that That's right. she was with. She kind of just her clothes are there or something and yeah. folded up, which kind of they never really really explain as to what happens there, yeah. and which makes you kind of wonder whether or not this concept of taking people's vitality via some kind of 
I don't know, sexual react yeah. or something like that happens through that kind of like transmission. Yeah. And what you end up with is a, a bag of clothes on the floor eventually because they're not there, yeah. you know, anymore. Yeah, and that that's like uh, almost a, a mirror version of Jerry, but where Jerry just steals people's social energy yeah. in order to kind of maintain himself like a psychic vampire. She literally absorbs people through the act of sex. Yeah. And they become part of her essence. And yeah, so she has that one night stand with that girl. Yeah. And Jerry kind of clip flops down the stairs. And he's not shocked or disturbed by it. It's just like, eh. Yeah. Because really, if you if you see someone's clothes on the floor, I'm like, well, where is she? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Which is why you kind of understand that these two really understand each other. Yeah. And know, uh, they might not necessarily like each other because it doesn't appear that they do. Yeah. But you understand that they're from a, a universe where both of them understand what is happening yeah. and what they're doing and what their real intention is with. And what they want to achieve. Yeah. yeah. And we won't, we won't talk about the end. But I think her agenda does shift slightly mm-hmm. um, in terms of as, as to what she wants because at this point it appears that she's, she's calling Dimitri Jerry Cornelius while they're in the sack. Yeah. She's absorbed this girl, this one-night stand, and she's obviously got her eye on Jerry. And I think at this point, it would be quite easy to think in terms of it being a two-dimensional sexual predator. Mm. But we find out there's a whole lot more to this in terms of what her objectives are. So we've been through this process. Everybody's got together. Jerry's back. They plot the final assault after hearing that Mr. Lucas is is now out, as he was stabbed to death the night yeah. before. Unlucky Mr. Lucas. And then we have this really, really fantastic page that when I was rereading it, rereading it today, in today's situation, with everything that's going on in the world, this indicates that this 1960s Europe is slightly different to the one that they knew at the time, but actually maybe not that dissimilar to the one we know right now. I see that Lyra, a 30 cents a million, Mr. Crookshank lit Miss Brunner's cigarette with a large gold gaslighter. They should never have backed out of the common market, Miss Brunner said pitilessly. What else could they do? The mark's still strong, said Mr. Powis. Ah, the Russo-American mark. They can't go on supporting it at this rate, Mr. Smiles smiled a satisfied smile. No, indeed. I'm still not sure that we were in the right. Mr. Powis sounded as if he were still not sure of anything. He glared inquiringly towards the scotch on the sideboard. Mr. Smiles waved a hostly hand towards it. Mr. Powis got up and poured himself a stiff one. Refusing to pay back all those European loans, I mean. I think. It wasn't exactly a refusal, Dimitri reminded him. You just asked for an indefinite time limit. Britain certainly is the black sheep of the family today, isn't she? The <laughs> <laughs> not thinking, holy shit, dude. We, you know, we, we talked earlier on about this being, in some ways, not dated or timeless. And... Yeah, it was. It, it's that that kind of concept of you know it, it, the, those kind of themes are so today yeah. and and so relevant and and even even um, the the concept of when you kind of start building all of this in terms of what happens, what is happening today, and what happens in the book. So the concept. Or the, the the political kind of instability that's around the world, which is kind of evident in that book in yeah. terms of almost the the impression that the world is about to end, which is sometimes 
you know, if you were cynical, that's how you would almost kind of view the world today, you know, because it seems like every knobhead is in uh, is in power where there could be, you know, but with, you know, very few exceptions kind of thing. You know, but it feels like that's the era at the moment. Yeah. And in, in terms of people's sexuality, you know, you the, the boundaries are getting so much more blurred between genders. Mm. You know, you, 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 you had a situation before where it was like, you know, the men did what men did and women did women did. And then there was kind of, there was, it was a very kind of binary sort of like, you know, yeah. view of genders. And now we're reaching a point where there's this concept of gender fluidity. And yeah. we are probably less likely to go like, oh, no way sort of thing. That's yeah. a step too far. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. And so in this, in this book itself, you know, we kind of end up with a situation where we're not quite sure what Jerry's, um, Jerry's gender quite whether he is actually a, a male or whether he kind of yeah. has this persona of a male yeah but it could be anything really yeah so another example of, of the brilliant nature of this book and the brilliant nature of Mopak at the time it's the mid-60s in the space of a couple of chapters he's got his main character is casually engaging in same-sex relationships with an Indian man which for the mid-60s is amazing then you've got Miss Brunner is casually getting engaged, involved in a same-sex relationship. Yeah, okay, she absorbs her and leaves her clothes on the floor. But and and Jerry just is just coming down the stairs like eh, no big yeah. deal. Um, obviously it should be a big deal that the woman's missing, but it's this yeah. this kind of relentless move, and we won't get to it in this episode. But there is as the book progresses, we have transgenderism, and we have uh, well, let's not spoil the end of the book. Something the film gets spectacularly wrong, by the way. <laughs> so this was made in the mid-60s, the film's made in the mid-70s, but film still hasn't caught up anywhere close to how progressive yeah. this book is. So, yeah, that, 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 I must say, that page, page 68, is, is so relevant now, and everything that's going on in this just adds to its kind of timelessness. After we've had that, things get kind of philosophical again, and they start discussing... The nature of entropy, as you do, yeah. <laughs> as one does, sitting around drinking <laughs> drinking Bell's whiskey. Bell's whiskey, good God! I know as a as a teetotaler, you were you were probably have a, an opinion on that. But was sixties Britain so bad that the the best whiskey people could drink was Bell's? <laughs> now, if anybody who's listening actually likes Bell's whiskey, apologies. <laughs> whiskey, in many ways, is like music. It's like I like heavy metal, but I don't like seventy percent of heavy metal. And whiskey's kind of similar. There's so much variety in whiskey. I love whiskey, but I don't like probably 50% of the whiskey in the world. So it's very much... But it's I, I haven't said that. I haven't said that. I, because of the fact that I don't drink, I won't have recognised many names that produce whiskey. Yeah. But I do recognise Bells because of their sponsorship, I think, of um, I think the football. Yeah, and, it's one of the biggest uh, names yeah. in whiskey, Bells. And, and so... Maybe it's not. I mean, someone, someone, somewhere has to be liking to liking it. <laughs> so they have this. Uh, I won't read out a lot of that stuff. This this kind of cosmological, philosophical discussion about the nature of entropy. But Miss Brunner says, and this tips us off as to what our ultimate mm. plan is. The more massive, in terms of population an area becomes, the more mass it attracts until the state of gravitational collapse is reached. Miss Brunner explained. Entropy, I think, Mr. Cruikshank, rather than chaos, Jerry said kindly. This becomes a, a, a constant running theme in the Jerry Cornelius novels, this theme of entropy and causing just a breakdown, of pretty much everything, a breakdown of civilization. 
But Miss Brunner's got a plan. She's got a plan for a program. She wants to do a program, and I think this is the first time when you when you just start to think, ah, we've got some slightly dated concepts here. When she started to think of, because in the sixties, people were like, oh, computers, they're so mysterious. These house sized things with tapes spinning, and it was I think it was quite a common thing in films and mm. fantasy and science fiction as well that computers can pretty much do everything. So Miss Brunner's got this idea that she's she's going to create a computer program, the final program, which will solve the problem of entropy. At this point, it starts, that reads as a little bit clunky. Well, I think, yes and no, in that we've now reached a point of artificial intelligence. And so that concept is actually as relevant today as is ever been. So if you look at, for example, artificial intelligence at the moment, what are people scared about with artificial intelligence? That there's this thing, this machine is going to take a life of its own and end up doing things which we have no control over. Yeah. Right, which is not a million miles from this. No. The the difference, the dated concept is the language. So, for example, programmers would not necessarily now call themselves or wouldn't refer to them as programming things. They'd be talking about coding things, and I think it's it's that which is the kind of the 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 more kind of dated kind of element of that. I think. Yeah. But the the idea of being able to create something which will be able to a, a, a computer-driven thing, which will solve entropy, is not you know it's it's not that difficult for, uh, that, that that different from today's world. Yeah. I think you know. Yeah. Well, they, they do go on to discuss all all of the different elements that would be required, and Jerry says, "I don't think there's a computer that's capable of doing that." And then they start talking about yeah. the things that you would have to factor in, and you you could actually add that into um you know the things that you would have to code, yeah. so to speak. So. You know, they talk about history, physics, geography, psychology, anthropology, ontology, and including the arts and philosophy. And it says it could just be a matter of time, come to think of it, before all the data crystallised into something interesting. And it says it's that amalgamation and constant correlation of information that they're talking about. And so the reference to a computer is, I mean, you're right, in some ways it's quite offhand almost. You, you could have that without really referring to program or computer um, and just be about you know, an ultimate attempt to collect all of the data in order to provide the solution, yeah. which is effectively yeah. what the end of the book is all about. Yeah. The chosen solution is pretty <laughs> is pretty out there, yeah. but it, it, it does draw in all sorts of different factors, which we've discussed before, which which kind of mark this book as being ridiculously progressive. I think it's the language of that era, which is, a, a, that that's the bit that's a little bit dated, you know, because we, I don't think I've ever heard of, um, we, we, we don't no longer call computer programmers computer programmers. Yeah. We call them com- computer scientists or we call them, you know, something something a little bit more kind of grandiose than yeah. perhaps a, a programmer now, you know, and I think that that's what's changed now, you know. And um, and, and the other, th- just kind of touching on toward the end in terms of the the concept that in order for us to be able to process this much information you know the big data world as we have it now, and and big data was the big thing for yeah. the last couple of years. You know uh, before it kind of seems to have gone out of fashion again. But when we talked about big data, we didn't envisage today that we would be having this massive computer mm. which would be able to process this. Our obsession is about miniaturizing things to be able to do what we used to do in in uh, um, in in, in kind of 
the same size equipment or smaller than what we've been used to. Mm. And um, so that that is, the, I think, the dated concept within the book. But actually, the, the themes are actually still, I think, as relevant today as that. Mm. It's, it's as um, ever been, I think. You know? Yeah. So now we get to chapter four, which is the raid. And I'm going to read the first couple of paragraphs out because, once again, we're starting to accelerate on that, some of those concepts now. Jerry steered the boat towards the light that had suddenly flashed out from a point near his port. Illuminated by the greenish glow from his indicator panel, his face looked stranger than ever to the others who waited on the deck outside his cabin. Miss Brunner, most prone to that sort of thing, reflected that the conflicting time streams of the second half of the 20th century were apparently mirrored in him, and it seemed that the mind behind cried forward while the mind in front cried back. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so we now know that Miss Brunner has got the same awareness as as Jerry, so they are very, very similar, and they have similar... I don't know if powers is the correct expression. Yeah, they, they seem like they seem to live in the same um, dimension, as, or at least recognise each other's dimensions. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're slightly dislocated. Yeah. So the assault takes place. There are all sorts of psychedelic, psychedelic weird defences in the chateau, which fire up, and we learn that the major objective of the assault is a stash of microfilms. Oh, <laughs> microfilms. In a vault, and only Frank knows the combination. If there's any remaining doubt as to the nature of Jerry and Catherine's relationship at this point, uh, we have it clarified. If he hadn't gone off after that night when his father had found him with Catherine, he would have inherited the microfilms as his birthright, since he was the elder son, but Frank got that honour. So now we know what the score is. Something on these microfilms is of super importance, but Jerry got passed over by his dad because his dad found him shagging Catherine, his sister. Mm. Oh, Jerry. So he's definitely been burning his sister. We know that now. Yeah. So they have this big gang of mercenaries consisting of ex-parachute regiment soldiers who were all pretty much disposable, and they fight their way through the house. The mercenaries take heavy losses to mesmeric traps and bullets and all sorts of other psychedelic things, but they finally find Frank and trap him. And at this point... Jerry's done his job for the conspirators, and he sets off to find John. And he finds him. In a corner, a bag of bones gave him a welcoming groan. John, where's Catherine? I got her here, sir, aye. But where is she now? Upstairs? You said after ten, sir. I was here by eleven. Everything went smoothly. She was awake. I'm dying, sir, I think. What happened? He must have followed me, John spoke with increasing faintness. I got her here. Then he came in with a couple of the men. He shot me, sir. And took her back to the house. I'm sorry, sir. So you should be. <laughs> Did you hear where I was taking her? So that is, again, almost word for word, the same as the Dreaming City, where we find out that Elric stroke Jerry is a really self-centred jerk. And this guy who was his mentor, his servant, done everything he asked, is sat, laid there dying and says sorry, and Jerry says, so you should be. What a tool. What an absolute tool. Um, so Frank's beating him to Catherine's room and he shoots Jerry with a drug needle. Jerry shoots back, hitting Catherine, trips out and wakes up to find Catherine dead. So everything's gone dreadfully wrong. Meanwhile, <laughs> Miss Brunner has Frank by the balls, literally. They do that really well in the film. It's really funny. And Frank opens the strong room and she lets him go. See, just touching on that incestual relationship, because he'd given me no pre-warning about what, about anything in terms of how this was set out, anything that happens in this book, 
I must admit, uh, when I was reading that, I was thinking, really? Is it? Is it? Is this actually happening here? <laughs> did, did they, you know, and maybe he just loves her sister and they kind of, you know, they have a very close relationship. Yeah. But, but I think then when he's kind of, you know, because my, my predisposition is that nobody could really do this, right? Yeah. But until we kind of get to the point where I think he puts a hand on her breast or something like that, where yeah. now I kind of think, ah, okay, <laughs> you know what? There's no other doubts anymore kind yeah. of thing, you know, that there, there is this kind of, you know, relationship at play here. But again, it's it's something which I, I remember, because one of the difficulties with reading this book, as I did, in terms of going in and out of it, dipping in and out of it at different points, is that you, you kind of return to the real world in between these stages, right? So yeah. you're, you're not kind of completely kind of engrossed into this kind of book in the way that you kind of buy into everything. So this concept that he's, you know, having this uh, incestual relationship with his sister or has done before and still has feelings for her and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really out there. But when you kind of read the book and everything else that's kind of happened with all the other kind of relationships yeah. in there, you very quickly kind of just accept it. Yeah, that, that's that's right. the way it is. You yeah. know, you no longer kind of even think, well, that's just you know, ludicrous, how could this even happen and all that? Yeah. You just kind of go, go well, okay, you know what, shrug your shoulders and go go along with it. Yeah, it's, 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 he gave us that hint early on that perhaps there was maybe an unhealthy element to that relationship or maybe it was just yeah. genuine sibling love. Well, this dispels that altogether. Yeah. So once again, that kind of that acceleration, that development of what he wrote in The Dreaming City. In The Dreaming City, it's his cousin and he wants her to be, he's an emperor and his cousin is the one who he sees as his rightful partner, uh, or his, his, his soulmate, his spiritual mm. soulmate, his intellectual equal. And the Frank figure is her brother, so also Alex's cousin, who hates Elric and isn't having any of that business. Whereas this, he just goes, you know what, oh, fuck it. It's his, it's his sister now. <laughs> and as, as, as the 70s would progress, there's, there's a, a series called The Dancers at the End of Time, and the first book in it's called An Alien Heat. And this is another example of Mokov to some extent recycling himself. The main, the lead character is called, not Jerry Cornelius, it's Jerek Carnelian. And it's set right at the end of time when entropy has basically destroyed most of the universe. And the last, the sole inhabitants of Earth are a bunch of weirdos with power rings who basically bring people from the past to that far distant future when the sun's about to swallow the Earth to entertain them. And basically everything is about entertainment and s- sensation. And the book starts, and on page two, he shags his man. <laughs> because she's also one of these denizens of the end of time, and they're just like, uh, yeah, anything goes. And I remember reading that thinking, whoa. But, but you know, but you it, know, you didn't, didn't give any hints to that one. It's no. page two. Yeah. It's page two. But when, when you think, though, in terms of that relationship, that, you know, incestual relationship, and what must have been like in the 60s to be reading about this stuff like this. And, and this is one of the, again, reasons why it feels like a, a, a modern book, I think, is that um, okay, I've not said I've, I've, I've not watched Game of Thrones. No, you know, it's not my thing. As, you know, there's dragons flying around, I yeah. think. So that kind of rules me out, yeah. I think, generally. But my understanding in that is that there's all of these kind of incestual relationships and, and, and that kind of thing happens. Within oh, yeah. The, that, that, that kind it's, of... it's, it's 
Um, what did Ian McShane described it um, as tits and dragons. Um, and that's a fairly apt description. Um, and there is an incestuous relationship in it towards the end where the audience know because they figured out yeah. the lineage of a key character. And when they fall in the sack, the audience are all going, no! <laughs> but then at the point where they find out, the yeah. <laughs> and, and it's absolutely yeah. that. And that, that, that's why I think that when, maybe you know, 20 years ago, if I was reading this, and I'd come across, the, but actually even then, you know, Brookside did an incestual relationship, yeah. you know, so maybe, maybe yeah. it wouldn't have been that oh, crazy. Of course, I am forgetting my Game of Thrones. Episode one establishes that brother and sister are shagging. Oh, okay. And that's a key character element of both of those characters throughout eight series. So yeah, how, how, for some reason I completely forgot that one. Yeah. But yes, yes, there's shitloads of incense. Yeah, incense, <laughs> incest. Yeah, so, well, I guess so. What I'm saying, I think, is that today we we're kind of desensitized to even that you know that kind of concept of uh, yeah. things happening in that sort of way. Whereas I think maybe in the 60s I don't know yeah uh, but people would have had much more of a, a stronger reaction to that you know people I think undoubtedly just... George R.R. R. Martin who wrote the Game of Thrones books is a massive fantasy nerd he's a massive Dungeons and Dragons nerd he must have read Mocock mm-hmm. um, because even if he wasn't consciously imitating or being influenced by him he was certainly subconsciously influenced by Mocock because one of the big houses in Game of Thrones might as well be the Elric race in mm. the early Elric books. El- Elric is, is an albino with white hair, his race, have dragons. Anyway, we'll go into yeah. it. We'll go into it. But there's, there's an incest and they live on a, a separate island and they conquered the world and they basically talk. It's, it's almost the same thing. Yeah. But that's, again, it, it goes back to Moorcock. Everything Moorcock did has become a trope in fantasy, yeah. you know, in modern fantasy. And everybody is doing it. There's a series on Netflix at the moment called The Witcher. Yeah, my wife is watching it. Right, so The Witcher, platinum stroke white hair, strange eyes, referred to as the White Wolf. Elric, early 60s, white hair, strange eyes, referred to as the White Wolf. Yeah, so we've now got news that an Elric TV show is being developed. Two Mocock properties are being developed okay. as, as t- potential TV shows for, for streaming giants or whatever. And you think at the point at which they come out, you'll have it, you'll end up with a similar situation as you had when that John Carter movie came out, which was based on the book Princess of Mars that Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote in nineteen twenty something. The author of Tarzan wrote a series of books about a Confederate soldier who gets transported to Mars, and on Mars he's kind of got mm. certain powers because of the low gravity. It influenced Superman. The idea of someone going from their planet to another one and the different nature of that planet making them seem like a Superman. Mm. And when John Carter came out, it was such a faithful adaptation that audiences yawned and moved on because they'd seen it all before. Oh, it's all been done. And it's, it almost the source like... material is nearly 100 years old yeah. and everything that was in Edgar Rice Burroughs' books has become a trope, became a trope of fantasy in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, and pe- people would have... I guess wrongly assumed that the thing that they watched first wasn't the ripoff of the thing that of course yeah they they're watching now yeah because someone else got there first yeah that's why someone needs to make the final program because the stuff in here especially all the stuff that comes later the transgenderism stuff and everything else that's all relevant stuff in society now mm but nobody's really picking up on it in any big way in mainstream stuff beyond you get things like Mark Gattis and 
Stephen Moffat redoing Dracula yeah. and incorporating lots of these elements and making rather than having homosexual subtexts, they make it overt. They could adapt this and they wouldn't have to do anything with it. They could adapt it as is. Mm. Because everything they've been trying to do in order to bring it to the fore, this was doing it in 1965. Anyway. So, I've got the microfilm. They've let Frank go. Microfilm. Yeah. It says, Frank skipped off out of the littered room behind the strong room and up the stairs. I think I'll just pop up after him and check he hasn't got something up his sleeve, Mr. Smiles said eagerly. We'll be waiting, said Miss Br- Miss Brunner. Dimitri helps Miss Brunner lift the files from their shelves and cart them into the room. When Mr. Smiles had disappeared, Miss Brunner began to stroke Dimitri. We've done it, Dimitri. Dimitri had soon forgotten the boxes and had become totally absorbed in Miss Brunner. <laughs> so, gosh, read that in isolation. There's nothing sinister about that whatsoever. But, you know, alas, poor Dimitri, we knew ye but little. But, you know, farewell. Farewell, sweet Dimitri. So that's the end of Dimitri. Where are we? So Jerry, Miss Brunner and Mr. Smiles are the only survivors of the attack force. Everybody else got done in by either bullets or needles or psychedelic gas bombs, various other things. Unfortunately, the microfilms aren't what they hoped, and Mr. Smiles doesn't make it back to the boats because he also succumbs to one of the final psychedelic defences. Jerry, still recovering from the needle, succumbs to his wound and awakes some time later in Sunnydale's nursing home where he convalesces. The nurse said, try getting some sleep. I don't need any sleep, said Jerry. You don't, but it's easier to run a hospital with all the patients sleeping. They're less demanding. Now you can do me a favour. Groan, beg for medical details, complain about the lack of attention we give you in the inferior way we run the hospital. But don't try to make me laugh. I don't think I could, could I? said Jerry. It's a waste of time, she agreed. And as a nurse, I do enjoy that. Then I wouldn't dream of it, said Jerry. (laughs) He felt fresh and relaxed, and he wondered why he should, considering his recent activities. He'd probably have plenty of time in which to work it out. He knew he'd be fighting trauma on all fronts, and the long coma had equipped him well to fight it. As best he could, he began putting his mind in order. During the weeks in the hospital, all he asked for was a tape recorder, tape, and cans, so there would be no trouble when he turned up the sound in moments of heavy concentration. And that's the end of phase one. So, will you return to cover phase two? I'm sure I can. (laughs) Splendid. It's been a pleasure to have you here, and I really look forward to uh, to talking through phase two, and hopefully over the next couple of episodes, trying to convince you to do further homework <laughs> and and pick up the English assassin. Well, maybe so. Well, like I said, I think um, one of the difficult, well, one of the things I did actually like about reading this was that you actually forced me to pick up a book, albeit in a digital format, uh, for the first time in a long time, yeah. because when you've got three young kids and um, you kind of you get to about eight nine o'clock in the evening all you want to do is just kind of zonk out and mm. not do anything and, and you kind of watch the most mundane tv program that you can find which doesn't have any demand on your on your brain power and um, so this kind of made me go back to kind of reading at least books yeah and so i'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that if nothing else <laughs> <laughs> well if um I think I told you, but I did get an indication a day or two ago that um, Michael Mocock's aware of the podcast and has actually listened to some of it. Yeah. So I'm sure he will be absolutely delighted with that faint <laughs> praise. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Thanks very much for uh, for being involved. 
Thank you very much. My thanks are due again to Hussein for being such a great guest and also for being such a great sport. Um, it took some convincing for him to get involved in this podcast and the more I said about hating science fiction and not being a fantasy guy, the more convinced I was that I wanted him to read the final programme and I'm really pleased he did. Thanks also, as ever, to existing show patrons Fred, Norman, David and Malpertius and also to a couple of new patrons... Um, Tom and Matt, thanks ever so much for supporting the show. I really do appreciate it. Um, And I hope very much that your investment will just enable this podcast to continue and get better. In the meantime, um, I already have The Jewel in the Skull Part 2 with Natasha in the can, although there are some substantial challenges around the editing and mixing on that one, thanks to Extraordinarily Happy Dogs and possibly a little bit too much rum imbibed i'll let you be the judge of that and also coming up in a few days i'll be recording part two of elric of melnibonet with Loz, and no doubt we'll also cast our eyes and make comment on a number of um, ales of some description i'm sure okay so thanks for everybody who's listened again thank you to all the folks who've um, given us shout outs on twitter on facebook Um, particularly in the Michael Mocock fan groups on Facebook. It's really much appreciated, and I'm really, really glad that something which, once again, I've said before, is just really a hobby, is out there and people are listening and enjoying it. So thanks again, and I'll see you on the Moonbeam Roads. (laughs) 